Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Jordan. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. In the United States and in North Carolina, every person has the right to obtain legal counsel in any proceeding in which they are engaged. This right applies in both civil and criminal matters, but many people are unable to afford to take advantage of this right. In criminal cases, every person charged with an offense which can result in imprisonment is entitled to a court-appointed attorney if they are indigent and can't afford to hire the attorney of their choice. In all other proceedings, the person must pay or be represented by an attorney who agrees to the representation without being paid or what we call pro bono. In too many instances, the right to an attorney is an empty entitlement if the person can't afford to hire someone. And hiring an attorney can be very expensive, which further complicates the enjoyment of the right by low and many middle-income residents. Residents are also stifled in the exercise of this right by the absence of available attorneys within close proximity to them. The right to counsel has no meaning where few attorneys are physically available to provide this legal representation. When there is an absence or shortage of available attorneys, a legal desert exists. And North Carolina has many legal deserts which negatively impact residents and stifle the exercise of this precious constitutional right. In North Carolina, which now has a population of over 10.6 million residents, there are approximately 12,000 active attorneys, but a large percentage of them are clustered in urban areas, and this creates a shortage of attorneys in rural and more remote counties. In our discussion tonight, we're gonna talk about legal deserts in North Carolina and how impactful they are around the state. Joining us for this discussion is attorney Brian Oten, who is deputy counsel at the North Carolina State Bar and has conducted a study of this uh, very important topic. So, uh, Attorney Oden, thank you very much for uh, joining with us this evening. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, to start us off, and uh, this is really to kind of help our audience a little bit, can you talk about the uh, North Carolina State Bar and the uh, work that you do with this uh, regulatory agency here in the state? Sure, absolutely. Well, the State Bar, of course, uh, as folks may or may not know, is the state agency tasked with regulating the legal profession in North Carolina. We are different from the Bar Association. 
The North Carolina Bar Association is a voluntary organization, a great organization, uh, but uh, they are separate from the state bar, which, uh, again, the state bar being tasked exclusively with regulating lawyers. That means that we uh, look at the standards that lawyers must adhere to. Those are known as the rules of professional conduct. And when lawyers violate those standards, uh, then if necessary, the state bar will investigate and potentially prosecute a lawyer for disciplinary violations. Um, so in my role, um, I've, I've actually got a slight uh, update to uh, uh, to my title. Uh, I was deputy counsel in the office of counsel for uh, about 11 years, and I uh, took a different role in 2018 as the chief ethics counsel. Um, so I went from uh, I went from from prosecuting to now uh, uh, looking at the rules and determining what are our standards, what should lawyers be required to to adhere to, um, and and make sure that those standards are relevant. Uh, and, and appropriate for the profession, um, all with the goal of protecting the public. The state bar exists to protect the public, not to protect lawyers. Um, so, so that is a key, uh, kind of our, our fixed star, so to speak, uh, here at the bar. And it's very important uh, information and uh, because a lot of people think that lawyers don't have any standards and right. <laughs> uh, certainly aren't uh, in a position that they are regulated uh, effectively by, uh, by, by anyone. And, uh, and I know that you know that that is not the case, given the volume of cases that uh, you, you've dealt with over the years yes. for the uh, state bar. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, given your, 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 your search for standards, uh, how did you get involved in this uh, study of legal deserts, and I just want to make sure that our audience don't think that we are misstating uh, deserts, uh, but this, the, the, these are deserts that exist within our uh, our state. So how did you get involved in this? Yes, well, we, we will discuss legal desserts at another podcast, perhaps. Uh, but uh, and, and <laughs> what what flavor of ice cream we we prefer? But the um, legal deserts, you know, this is an issue that um, I guess just as far as the state bar staff, you know, me being one of uh, one of many uh, lawyers that are on the staff, we are tasked not just with um, you know some folks are doing the prosecution, the disciplinary investigations. I'm in the ethics department, looking over the rules and offering ethics advice to attorneys. <clears throat> excuse me, that are uh, that are looking for uh, some sort of guidance in, in particular situations, difficult situations they find in their everyday practice. Um, but uh, we also serve as staff counsel to a number of different state bar committees. Um, and the state bar looks at a variety of issues on a yearly basis. Um, recently, they they were we had a subcommittee that was appointed to do a survey of the different regulatory change issues that are going on across the country. There's a lot of states that are trying to address the access to justice gap by looking at how you regulate the bar. And really the question being, are the, the regulations in place for the legal profession actually hindering the legal profession's ability to evolve and to provide services, really the relevant services that that consumers need today, particularly those that cannot afford services. Um, so that that being one other example of something that uh, that the state bars looked at, legal deserts came up. Uh, I believe earlier this year, um, or maybe late last year, uh, Darren Jordan, our current president of the state bar was attending a, a meeting with the, I believe with the American Bar Association. 
And he was talking with some individuals from the Texas bar and the Texas bar was looking at this issue um, and, and informing him that, you know, there's, there's a lot of other states that have been looking at this question of certain parts of the state as we become a bit more almost centralized in our population uh, areas, you know, Raleigh, Charlotte being the prime examples here, everybody's moving to Raleigh and Charlotte. Um, but uh, but as that goes on across the country, then different states are seeing these pockets, geographic pockets in their state where there are no more lawyers. Um, and so that really struck a chord with Darren because Darren is he's from Salisbury. Um, and he, I think he has a, a particular heart for smaller communities. And so he brought this to the state bar council and said, you know, as, as basically as I look around the state, I'm, I'm curious what our ratio is. Do we have any legal deserts? If so, how many? Uh, and so I started looking into it. And that's when uh, we really start kind of getting into the, the, the data of breaking down our judicial districts, our counties, how many lawyers are in particular counties. Uh, and uh, and you could you know, see some of the information that I sent over um, in advance. We we had a we had a, a meeting that that kind of started bringing all the stuff up. But we we started talking about really the population shifts that have occurred in North Carolina and recognizing that we have a large number of legal deserts here. And I want to be clear: the legal desert definition. Uh, you know, some people might be saying, "Well, exactly how are you defining that?" The definition of a legal desert is a geographic area where there is a ratio of less than one lawyer for every 1,000 residents. All right, so the 1,000 residents, and if there's less than one lawyer, um, you know, you might have some counties that have really just half of a lawyer, which means there's one lawyer for every 2,000 residents, that sort of thing. That is going to be considered a legal desert. Um, and you can understand why. I mean, 1,000 people that need access to legal services, uh, and there's only one lawyer to provide those services, it is that is a scarce source of services, to say the least. Yeah. And Brian, can you when you talk about uh, one lawyer per or less than one lawyer per a thousand residents, are you looking at um, the type of lawyer or just lawyers generally? So, is there legal deserts based on criminal matters, legal deserts based on civil matters, or is it all kind of combined together? That's a great question. It is all combined together. So you may have just a handful of lawyers uh, in a particular county. I believe we actually have two counties in North Carolina where there are only two lawyers. Uh, I believe they're out the in the the eastern part of the state. Um, you know, and that's you know kind of the uh, I guess it's a, a a sad reality. Of course, there's the slightly humorous take that well, you need two lawyers to get anything done in the legal practice. So at least there's two. But um, but really, it is anything where those folks are probably general practitioners that are uh, taking on criminal matters, civil matters, family matters, writing wills, whatever it may be. But yes, the legal desert definition is just looking at just whether a lawyer in general is present. Okay, you, you, you talked about or you mentioned uh, the shifting population. Yes. Uh, can you kind of tell us a little bit about how that uh, those shifts in populations within North Carolina is uh, impacting uh, the uh, presence of these uh, legal uh, deserts and, and, and particularly where uh, right. do these uh, deserts exist? And that's that has been one of the more fascinating aspects of this. You know, like I said, Darren Jordan brought this to the council's attention. They said, "Yeah, let's take a look at it. We'll point, we'll appoint a committee 
to uh, to kind of dive in. And we are still at the early stages of our exploration of the issue, but looking at population changes over the past 10 years, just using the 2020 census data, um, I thought was really fascinating. The notion that between 2010 and 2020, North Carolina increased its population by nearly 10%, went from 9.5 million people to nearly 10.5 million people. And as you mentioned earlier, you know it's grown even since then. Um, but during that same period, 51 North Carolina counties actually lost population. You know, so we increased overall by 10%, but over half of our counties actually lost population. And that to me is just, is kind of a fascinating thing. You can imagine where the growth is occurring. The growth is occurring in our, uh, in our cities. We have uh, Raleigh, um, and really when you look at counties, Wake County, Mecklenburg County, uh, down in, you know, talking about Charlotte, um, you see uh, Durham County, Guilford, Greensboro, Forsyth uh, with Winston-Salem, but you see a, a great deal of growth in uh, those larger kind of more city populations uh, and, and a decrease in overall population in the rural counties. Um, and, and that you can see there's, there was already an imbalance of lawyer population uh, to uh, uh, to the, in those urban counties as opposed to the rural counties, um, but that seems to have even grown further. <laughs> it's it's grown wider. Um, and by way of example, you know, just when we look at at the overall statistics <laughs> for for lawyer population in these different counties, um, Wake County, for example, or just looking at Wake and Mecklenburg together, uh, those are our two largest counties. Obviously, they have. 21 and a half percent of the total state population, but they have nearly 47 percent of the active lawyers in North Carolina. That is, I mean, you can imagine why it, it makes sense, particularly for Wake County, because there's a lot of governmental institutions in this area. And, and of course, there's going to be a larger lawyer population um, just because there's there's a lot more stuff, whether you're talking about government action or, or what have you that that's happening here but that is very different 21 and a half percent of the population but 47 percent of the lawyer population and really if you look at just kind of expand that to the top five most populous counties 63 percent of the active north carolina lawyers reside in wake mecklenburg guilford durham and forsyth counties so 63% exist in just five counties. Um, and that is, I think, really tells the tale of, of where our lawyers, they are concentrated in uh, those uh, more urban counties and therefore are not really uh, present or as nearly present in the rural counties. But we're, we're in a state where they are basically uh, five real urban community uh, right. as such, and everything else is uh, pretty rural. Right. Um, what happens in these deserts? I guess you're really talking about more rural communities. Uh, how, how, how are they, uh, uh, how, how do the law, lawyer populations show up in those counties? Sure. That's and you know that's the I think we're starting to hear more and more 
from those the representatives from those counties. Um, so just kind of, I guess, by way of background, with this committee that's been set up by the State Park Council, um, there the vice president Todd Brown, uh, attorney from Charlotte, um, appointed a number of members to this committee, but. Primarily, the committee consists of lawyers from judicial districts that have at least one legal desert county. And so we were able to get their perspective of what's going on in these counties. Um, one thing that or really a couple things that that stick out to me from our, our first meeting when we were talking, getting everybody giving their perspective of of, you know, what they're seeing kind of on the ground, so to speak, in those counties. Um, but Daryl Davidson, uh, a lawyer from Statesville, uh, whose district encompasses Alexander County, uh, he pointed out that um, at least his his last check was that Alexander County was down to two, possibly three lawyers on the court appointed list for criminal representation. And you know what you were talking about at the at the outset that citizens are entitled to representation and really constitutionally guaranteed representation in a in a criminal matter. And if you have you don't have a public defender's office because it's a it's a, a smaller county, uh, but then if you find yourself with uh, uh, with just two people to select from the court appointed list, you can imagine how overworked those attorneys are, whether or not they can provide fully competent representation to the individuals that need that representation, if at all. And that is how those legal deserts are actually impacting access to justice um, and why the state bar is, it considers this a, a, a serious issue that we need to take a look at. Um, and, and for the total number, just you know, if anybody's wondering how many of those counties are legal deserts under that definition based upon lawyer population in, in North Carolina, 48. 48 of our 100 counties meet the definition of being a legal desert here in North Carolina. Okay, I guess this is a good place for us to stop and take our break right now. You're listening to the uh, Legal Eagle Review uh, here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we are talking with uh, Attorney Brian Oden uh, about uh, his study of uh, legal deserts in uh in North Carolina. Some of you are in a lawyer-rich uh, community, others a lawyer-poverty uh, community. And we're going to continue uh, this uh, conversation after we take a uh, quick break. We'll be right back to stay with us. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission 
to one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review where we are continuing our conversation with uh, Brian Odom, who is with the uh, North Carolina State Bar. And we're talking about a study uh, that he is uh, engaged in and that the State Bar is interested in dealing with uh, legal deserts uh, here in, uh, in North Carolina. And uh, some... Uh, surprising information, but really information that's pretty widely known and anticipated to uh, to some extent. Uh, Brian, you said that there are 70 rural counties in, uh, in North Carolina in your report, and there are 30 urban counties. Uh, how do you define an urban county versus a rural county? So that was used, or we used the uh, Department of Health and Human Services definition uh, for those different counties. Um, and, and I believe that their definition of an urban county is really a, what they consider a central metropolitan county that, that essentially, you know, we're talking about business services, the variety of services that are available uh, to the residents and really that they serve as a central location for uh, residents, particularly from surrounding counties, to come, um, and you can see that the 30 different counties. You know, when you you look through um, the the map that the Department of Health and Human Services put out there, uh, you there's the obvious ones, uh, as you can imagine, Wake and Durham and Orange and so forth. Uh, but when you look through, you see stuff like like Catawba County and Burke County. Um, you know, those are. Um, I guess if you visited, you would probably think this feels a bit more rural. Um, maybe not Catawba, but Burke County. Um, and uh, and that's no slight to Burke. I've been to Burke. It's, it's a very lovely place. Um, but uh, but I think, you know, even looking up in, in Stokes County, uh, up in the, the far north uh, portion, portion of our state, um, it's, it's really kind of looking at the amount of services that are offered, that are available, and that bring other residents to there. So, um, you know, if, if I was going to define a county just from my own perspective, uh, I feel like we probably have less than 30 urban counties, but that's, that's just my two cents. So Brian, you mentioned that um, we have a shift in the population, not just the overall population in North Carolina in terms of where folks are residing, but also a shift in terms of the lawyer <clears throat> population. Right. Can you shed some light on why it is that lawyers are not choosing to go to these counties where there is a need? Um, so you mentioned Alexander County, so two to three attorneys, and, and there obviously is a need. And so um, if a lawyer were to move into that area, they would there would be no shortage of work available. Right. Yes. Why is that in and of itself not enough to convince lawyers, particularly our newer lawyers, um, to move into these legal deserts? 
we are in the process of trying to get an answer. <laughs> the, um, the, the, in fact, the next meeting that we're planning to hold uh, with our committee will bring in representatives from the different law schools, uh, Central, Campbell, UNC, Wake Forest, Duke, Elon, uh, to, to bring in representatives to give us a couple of different data points. There might be, um, and we've, we've reached out to these schools to just kind of lay that foundation and and hopefully we'll see everybody be able to come and join the conversation and talk about some specific data like where have your students gone um, and really trends that you've seen maybe over the past five to ten years where have your students gone um, what types of jobs are they taking and is there a change is there a shift just in the data but then also just to talk about kind of the anecdotal experience you know that's where i remember talking with um uh with somebody from wake forest who said you know i'm having a hard time convincing my students that they should even stay in forsyth you know it's 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 something that there's such a draw to wake and mecklenburg or outside of the state you know the desire to be in an area where as a young person you're going to potentially meet people you have nightlife activities um, you have restaurants of your choosing, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and, and I think, and I, I get that, you know, I, I, I'm sitting here in Wake County myself and, and it's a nice place to live. But I think another factor that, that we discussed during the committee um, that is really cited <laughs> in a variety of these different, um, whether we're talking about uh, publications, there's a lot of articles, there's even a, um, a law review article that was put out in the Harvard Law and Policy uh, Review uh, that talks about legal deserts. It was published in 2019, and it talks about legal deserts in some states and, and just kind of looking at what is the source of this. Student debt, I think, is playing a big role, um, that that folks are, are walking out of law school uh, with six figures uh, or even, you know, <laughs> inching upward, uh, it seems, of debt. And the question of, can I get on the court-appointed list out in Alexander County and actually meet my student debt uh, requirement, my obligations, is really, really um, kind of a, a mountain to, to try to climb. Um, on top of that, you you look at those issues of um, not just, you know, what's potentially available, but where's your career path? And I think this is something that um, a lot of folks we were talking on the committee, a lot of folks that are in these smaller communities said, you know, I wanted to go out to a community where there was no competition. I wanted to set up shop and offer services and be that person in town. And that either isn't appealing anymore um, or it just doesn't seem feasible given the amount of debt that you're looking into, the opportunities that you may have, loan forgiveness through the public service, uh, loan forgiveness program um, may not be as readily accessible there as it would be in Wake County or Mecklenburg, where there's a lot more government services and things of that nature. So um, the bottom line is we're, we're going to talk to a number of folks. That's part of what the State Bar is trying to do. We're trying to facilitate a conversation and see if we can find solution, identify solutions that were in that are already in place in other states that at least are in progress. I don't know if I would call them solutions yet, but they're efforts being made. Um, and and really recognizing that the state bar can't we can't compel an attorney, a new attorney, to go to a particular county, but perhaps we can explore why folks are not choosing those attorneys, or excuse me, choosing those counties, and see if if there's a way that we can change the conversation. Well, let me just ask, you know, whose responsibility is it to identify 
the existence of uh, these problems and to uh, seek out uh, some uh, resolution? Great question. I think I'll, I'll, I'll just speak for, for myself, for Brian here. I think it's all of our responsibility as lawyers uh, because we are a profession we are here to serve the public. We're serving our clients. Um, it is a calling, and I think it's something that that we look around and we see a need. You know, lawyers are problem solvers, um, and and this is a problem, and and this is something that I I like to think that we can solve. The state bar is taking this on because you know we we are tasked with regulating the profession, and really the, there's a Supreme Court case from the early '90s, um, Keller versus the State Bar of California, that set out. Just what is a what is it that a state bar can really do in in utilizing mandatory dues that are collected, and it's really the regulation of the profession and the improvement of legal services. And I think when we look at how this situation is impacting the public, and you know that that example I shared from Alexander County is one that unfortunately is not unique to Alexander mm -hmm. County, but you have counties where there are less lawyers. A really a, a scary small amount of lawyers. So not only do we have criminal representation that's impacted, um, we are talking about uh, folks that that don't have access just to general legal services. There's there are domestic issues in rural counties as well as urban counties. Um, there are uh, employment issues. There are estate issues, just drafting a will, things of that nature. And that is a situation where we find that access to services is really detrimental or a lack of access to services is detrimental to the public in North Carolina. And that's why the state bar is looking at this to see if, if we can bring a lot of folks to the table to find a solution or find some effort that maybe we can make. Maybe it's planting the seed uh, of an idea. In, in a young lawyer's head that, that, you know, and we give them the opportunity to experience a role, uh, uh, a role of uh, practice. Maybe it's looking at things like how do we make existing services more accessible to those in rural counties? Um, you know, there's, there's a variety of angles to, to take, but I think that's why the state bar sees this as, as very much within its um, kind of staying, trying to stay in its lane, but seeing that this is a part of its lane. Um, one thing I, I did want to um, kind of touch upon uh, to go back just for a minute, when when we look at the quality of life, so you mentioned, you know, these two to three lawyers in Alexander County, and they may very well be overworked. Um, and as lawyers are thinking about where to work, and they're thinking about the balance in their lives, I think it's always important. And it's one of the things that we do here at NCCU School of Law is talk to our students about mental health and wellness. And lawyers are oftentimes overworked. And so if yes. you're trying to decide where you're going to practice, you've got to bear that in mind as well. So right. um, a jurisdiction or a county that has too few lawyers may not be the best place for you to practice just for your own kind of mental and physical well-being. Um, the other thing that I wanted to um, have you talk about is, so this is a problem that is that is getting worse. And I think the state bar should be commended for taking a hard look at this and, and seeing if we can um, get these questions answered. How did it get to this point? What, how, how did we 
take our eye off the ball. And when I say we, I'm talking about the legal profession as a whole, because as you noted, it's it's all of us. It's our, you know, all of our problems. How did we take the eye off the ball in terms of um, providing services to our uh, community, to our society? I think, um, you know, this this is, I think it's a great question. I I think the it really kind of starts with, you know, the fact that we have these existing lawyers and we're really only seeing it now. We had the baby boomer generation come in and provide a lot of lawyers to offer services. And 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 there we are talking to these lawyers that are on the committee about how, you know, you're out in, say, uh, you're out in Burke County, you're out in McDowell County, you're somewhere in the western part of the state, and and you took over someone's practice. You went back home so to speak, and you took over someone's practice, and that's not happening anymore. And that is the question of when did that stop happening? Was that, like you said, was that 20 years ago? But the the folks that were still there are still providing those legal services, and so you just don't really notice it. Um, but now it's being noticed, and I think, I guess my my personal kind of observation is that as we see the uh, boomer generation retire, move uh, out of practice and say, okay, it's it's time to hang up. And they're looking around, who can take over my practice? Uh, there's no one else here. Um, and that is what is now kind of creating, I think, a snowball effect um, because we haven't, perhaps it was kind of a given, it was presumed that the individuals from those counties would return back home or that there was going to be that perspective of, I'm not from there, but I understand that there's a there's a lawyer out there with a good practice, and they're looking to bring on an associate, um, and that that just uh, that that was not either looked for or was not offered. Um, I I also think you know that again that student debt issue plays in that perhaps folks were a bit more free when they were not coming out with this monstrosity uh, of, of, of a debt load. Um, and, and they realize, you know what, I can, I can go out there. I know I've got some student loans to pay off, but I'll get to those in time. And, and now you're walking out of school with that being right in your face. And that is probably going to direct your path um, or at least have a strong influence on your path. And, and so that's where I, I kind of feel like there's a, a multitude of factors really that led to this situation, but it's really only reared its head um, in the past, it feels like 10 years, something like that. Is, is it a responsibility of the state bar to inspire these uh, law students, uh, young lawyers to populate uh, these communities, or is it more appropriately placed uh, on uh, local officials in those communities to recognize that they are in a desert and that they need to do something positive to bring lawyers into their community? Or is it a matter of both? I would say yes. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think it's both. Um, you know, the one of the things, and just, you know, by way of example, and really the um, the input that I received from different committee members and the ideas that we've we've heard from a number of other folks that are interested in this as well, from um, the um, uh, Indigent Defense Services uh, is looking at how they can provide representation across the state. Um, the Chief Justice uh, of our Supreme Court here in North Carolina is, is similarly interested in this issue. We've just we've heard a lot of different folks that are um, that that recognize, you know, we've been to these counties and and this if we don't 
look at what we can do about this now and maybe try to make some sort of effort, this could get worse. Um, and, and that's not good for the people of North Carolina. And so I think one of the things we were, we've talked about just, you know, is almost like a, an immediate response um, that the state bar and particularly the counselors uh, on the state bar council that are from these communities, we're looking to um, in, in time in the next, you know, quarter or so, reach out to law schools to see if we can uh, bring uh, some of our counselors, particularly from these smaller communities, to the schools uh, and to, to talk with students, to explain to them, those folks that may not even be thinking of going to a rural community, you know, let me tell you what it's like to practice in a rural community. Um, maybe that does offer some insight that you otherwise would not be exposed to. Um, and I mean, particularly when you look at our law schools. Our law schools are all in urban counties, um, especially once Campbell moved from Bowie's Creek. Uh, then, then there in Raleigh, you've got Chapel Hill, you've got Winston-Salem, you've got Durham, you've got Greensboro. I mean, it's we, we are all centrally located. And so I think the, the, the exposure to the possibility is one factor. Um, I think the the local communities can also help out as well, and that's something that we actually have seen in other states. Um, and there's there's a number of examples to go through, but I'll just share this one because I thought this was one of the more interesting uh, prospects. South Dakota has been dealing with this issue for some time, uh, and they have a, uh, a a set up a program between the uh, locality, the basically the the, the town. Uh, that uh, they're looking to have a lawyer come, the uh, effectively their administrative office of the courts, uh, their court system, as well as the state bar. Those three entities, the court system, the state bar, and the uh, the town, basically have a they've got a program where they will pool their money together to try to attract a new lawyer <laughs> to their county and set up shop. Basically, give them. A, a startup money. You know, I think it's something like the equivalent of, of 90% of the first year tuition at the University of South Dakota Law School. It comes out to roughly $19,000. Um, but basically say, if you come here and you set up shop and stay for three years, we're going to give you this startup money to set up your office. Again, it's, it's planting a seed, but really creating an incentive to bring folks out. But the thing that I really like about that program is that it gets everyone involved. Everybody has a reason to see this through because they're all financially contributing and uh, and they can see exactly, you know, does this plant the seed? Does this establish a law office? And the person after three years realizes, I, uh, I, I like this. I've got something going here. And, and now, my, whereas I may have gone to a more populous county before, I'm just going to stay here. That that would be a, I feel like that's that would be a great resolution. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we have joining us here this hour in our Zoom studio, attorney Brian Oten. He is the chief ethics counsel at the North Carolina State Bar. And we've been talking this hour about legal deserts in North Carolina talking about the problem, why it exists, and we'll begin talking about how we can begin to solve this issue. We're going to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back.
Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. We're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with attorney Brian Oten. He is the Chief Ethics Counsel at the North Carolina State Bar and he's recently conducted a study on legal deserts in North Carolina. Um, Brian, you were talking right before the break about South Dakota's, um, one of their you know, potential solutions to address this issue. So incentivizing uh, young lawyers to go to these particular areas by providing startup money. So one thing that um, those of us who kind of talk about access to justice recognizes, the problem is so huge that you really can't solve the problem completely by putting more bodies in place, that there just aren't enough lawyers to be able to kind of fill those gaps. Certainly not enough lawyers who are, who are interested in doing it. So you can you know, make a dent in the problem. Can you talk about the role that technology might play in helping address this issue? Right. That's, and that is, I think, a, a, a great question, a great potential solution, you know, and, and it needs to be recognized that that technology opens up legal services that exist, say, in Raleigh to those that might be in Terrell County. If somebody's trying to draft a will, um, that might be something that that you could have a consult with a lawyer, wherever that lawyer may be in North Carolina, and, and get your legal services that you need. Technology can open the door to the it's a legal services and and the access there too um but of course as as we all know legal services is um in many ways and, and particularly in certain cases very personal right you need to be there you need to interact with the person maybe you're representing somebody in a criminal defense matter or a domestic action and you lawyer will be able to provide better services by understanding where your client is coming from, where is your client living, what situation are they in, talking with folks, getting a feel for those that are around them, the environment, things of that nature. And so, you know, there is, um, I feel like technology has a role to play in this. And, and like you said, when you're talking about access to justice, it is such a large issue. And there are so many different factors that play into the difficulties we see with access to justice and 
as probably not surprising, it, there are a lot of different solutions, none of which are the silver bullet, so to speak. It's it's going to take a, a variety of different efforts, but I do think technology has the potential to open up previously inaccessible services um, to those in rural counties. Um, really, if we are we are an increasingly connected society, and so if you have an internet connection, you have a mobile device, whatever it may be, you may be able to have that conference with a lawyer that that physically is not present, that you can't go meet with in person, but perhaps the services that you need could be addressed over a video conference. It, it is certainly um, something that needs to be explored. And I think that's a, a great idea, except that, you know, those rural counties and those remote counties are the ones that have access to technology problems. Absolutely. Uh, that uh, exist. And if you can't increase the uh, availability of the uh, technology, then that plan doesn't uh, really get you to where it uh, needs to be with the population that is most needed. 100%. That's your right. Infrastructure is critical. And, and I think that's something that, you know, one of the, um, one of the ideas for, for our committee meetings is to speak with, um, and I'm, I'm failing to remember his name, but there's a, a professor uh, over at UNC Chapel Hill that has studied infrastructure in rural counties. And that's going to inform, um, we're hoping to, to speak with him, and, and hopefully that will inform our conversation, our thought process of just, it's not just kind of, you know, you can come up with these ideas, but like you said, re realistically, if it's not an idea that can be implemented, then it's not really an effective idea. And mm -hmm. so it, there, there may be other efforts and clearly that is outside of what the state bar can do. Uh, we, we can't make efforts to try to, you know, put fiber lines uh, running out to the rural counties. That is a different thing. But again, if we can highlight the issue bring people to the table, facilitate that discussion, then perhaps this ends up being truly a joint kind of statewide community effort. Are there other um, innovative ways that other states jurisdictions are using to try to address this problem? Yeah, there's a number of examples. Um, I think the the examples you see, really, if I had to categorize them, I would put them in two categories. One is to focus on efforts to bring lawyers to the community, um, licensed active lawyers to their community. The other is focused on students um, and, and trying to, you know, kind of create an idea in a student's mind and expose them to what their potential practice could be. Um, and by students, I'm, I'm talking about mostly law students, but there are a number of programs out there that focus on undergrads, um, even you know, possibly reaching out to, to high schoolers. Um, I think a, a good example of, um, of the, the student focus, Maine has a program. The University of Maine uh, has a rural lawyer project and they pair their law students with rural practitioners for a 10 week summer internship. They pay them a stipend. Um, and uh, for both uh, second year students as well as third year students. Uh, and, and so the, um, you know, it's, it's funded through the, through the law school. So the rural practitioner isn't the one that has to come up with the money, but they, they end up giving this experience to the law student 
and the law student from you know, what I've read, some of the early reports, this hasn't been in existence for decades. It's it's a, still a relatively new program, but that there have been a, a number of students that went out to these rural practices, ended up getting a job offer and then taking the job offer because they saw the impact that they could have on that community, you know, they 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 fell in love with it, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, I think Georgia has a similar program. I remember reading something out of Kansas that focuses on undergrads, uh, and and they looked at really providing pre-law undergraduate students with experiences in rural areas and as an incentive, you know, they're giving them giving these undergrads that are looking at law school these experiential opportunities to, to see how a practice operates and, and, and perhaps, you know, get their, uh, get, get their, their, their creative mindful or mindset going uh, on what they could do with their practice. But also um, they would offer those undergraduates um, kind of a, almost a, an access to information from the law school administration about, you know, if I'm really going to pursue admission, What's the best way to pursue admission? What what do I need to highlight in my resume, in my experience? What am I lacking? Um, you know, and things of that nature. So they they try to create an incentive for those that are already interested in law school, but going even earlier in their academic career to try to plant that seed, create the idea. Um, the other states that um, that are focused on the 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 bringing the lawyer to the community. We'd already talked about South Dakota. Um, Arkansas has something where they look at their their new lawyers. This is from the Arkansas Law School, but they look at their their more recently uh, licensed lawyers and try to, again, create um, an incentive by providing a stipend uh, to, uh, to go out and set up shop in the uh, in in a, a rural community that needs more lawyers. Um, Illinois has something as well. Illinois actually had a, a program where they have two programs. One is focused on students, but then the other one is focused on um, graduates uh, where they are trying to get those graduates to go to rural practices and become an associate. And they essentially provide them um, a $5,000 uh, stipend at the first year, the beginning of their year of employment in a rural area, and then $5,000 if they're still working for that same firm, another 5000 if they're still working for that same firm at the end of the first year. So it creates that incentive on the front and back end of that one year to stay out there in the rural practice and try to, again, make someone almost kind of connected to the community. When you're there for a year, you start making those connections, you build those relationships, and suddenly you have more of a draw uh, to that uh, uh, to that that community. Um, of course, that one is is funded, I believe, mostly by the Illinois State Bar Association. They're a voluntary bar, something like we have here in North Carolina uh, Bar Association. Um, so, you know, again, you talk about all these things, and there's there's a lot of money that's tied to it. And that is going to be one of the biggest hurdles. Um, the state bar can't necessarily fund. Uh, we can facilitate the conversation, but but you know we we are entirely supported by mandatory dues, um, and so I, I I don't think there's any um, there's any uh, I guess uh, possibility that mandatory dues can be used to fund this type of thing. I guess we have to explore that, but that's where we're hoping to bring more folks to the table to see what opportunities there are in these minimal investments, or at least what seem like they're uh, smaller investments uh, on the, the grand scheme of things, that, that perhaps those can actually make a difference when you try to attract younger law students or younger attorneys to these areas. Well, you know, you you, ra you raise that uh, issue. Uh, has there been an effort 
to uh, make contact with our legislative leaders, many of whom live in these uh, desert uh, communities, uh, to make this a part of the uh, state plan. Uh, the legislature needs to address uh, this, uh, this issue in, in terms of the welfare of uh, the citizenry. And, uh, and they come from uh, basically those communities that uh, are in need, and uh, they have the uh, ability uh, to uh, find the resources necessary to create an expanded type uh, program, both on the uh, uh, civil side, on the criminal side, and also on the uh, development of the uh, business interests uh, that, uh, that, that would have to go along with uh, any type of solution in this, in this area. Right, and the State Bar has not reached out yet. Uh, that is something that, you know, uh, with our committee starting just now, we're, we're trying to inform ourselves uh, and, and find the direction that we need to take. But I'll tell you, one of the things that I've learned early on in talking with um, a couple of different individuals is, are the, the existence of current programs that actually do focus on this. Um, I believe there is, and I, I could be uh, mistaken on the exact details, but I believe there is some program that is focused on attracting students in a variety, not just law school, but in a variety of vocations to rural practices. And it's something that's available to law students, but that from the person I was speaking with, they said it's been rare, if at all, that a law student has actually applied for what is essentially a summer stipend for an internship uh, in between, you know, their first or second year or whatever it may be. And so that's something that, you know, again, we're, we're, we're really just starting and I think we're scratching the surface and seeing how many different resources are out there, how many different things that, that we can, um, I guess, look at and, and bring to the table, uh, that being one of them, but then also you're right talking to the legislatures, talking to the representatives of these different districts to see what's your experience in your district um, as far as legal services, lawyer population, um, and, and what your citizens need, perhaps we can get something going there. So I, I think that is, um, that, that's a part of the conversation to be had. Now, one of the things that you know, I know all of us are um, conscientious of when it comes to making broad changes to, to systems and institutions and, and the practice of law is no different. Things can move very slowly. Yes. <laughs> what advice can you give to those of us that are um, really concerned about this issue? And, and as you noted, we all should be very concerned to help move this along because there are those right now and uh you know if we're talking about um from a criminal representation standpoint a civil representation standpoint the majority of legal needs are not being met and so what can we do to accelerate the solutions to this incredibly important problem right and that's you know and this kind of goes back to something that that you had mentioned before, you can't just solve these problems with just adding more people. Um, but but that's I think there's there's you know opportunities for lawyers to offer pro bono services, but really that's that's just barely even putting a dent in it. Maybe um, I think this is something that you know for one because we are essentially in our infancy in talking about this. It's bringing 
as many people to this this uh, this discussion as possible. But I think we can also, um, you know, in having those opportunities to talk with law students with with really anybody one of the things that, that we were talking about early on was just the notion of you know some of the efforts that the medical profession makes you know the medical profession has been dealing with this in a similar way with rural health issues yeah. and and some of the efforts that they have made was to were to identify the young people in their community and I think one of our counselors, um, Joshua Malcolm who's uh, from Lumberton uh, yeah. he he had he kind of talked about how the effort is to show these young people the path. We show them the path to get these skills, acquire the skills and bring the skills back home. And that's something that, you know, in that way, I don't know that there is a short-term immediate solution. This is a long-term thing if it's going to have any lasting effect. And I think part of that long-term solution is to I guess, take a more proactive role in our communities to to recognize if there's a student that expresses interest, there's a young person that expresses interest in going to law school, um, to to share some of our time and and explain you just what is it like to be a lawyer? Come, come, come to work with me. Um, we can we can go to court if you're you're interested. We can talk to other folks. You know, it's kind of one of those funny things that lawyers are always happy to talk about themselves. Uh, they, they will always take some time to talk about their case and their day and all that. And I think those are the things that can really make a difference in setting someone's path. And so, you know, again, it isn't it isn't an immediate fix. I think the immediate fix is going to be stuff like focusing on some of these ways that we can get young lawyers out to the different communities, perhaps looking at funding opportunities, the way that other states are funding uh, uh, these sorts of efforts. Um, that will take some time. There's budget cycles. There's different folks to convince. Um, but you know, it, it at least could be a bit more um, a, a bit quicker than than perhaps you know a decade long uh, idea that's planted. But I think both are required. You know, we need to look at short term and long term. And some of those long term uh, changes really start with us taking the time to have those conversations, to show interest in somebody and 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 try to help them make some decisions and understand this is how you can change the community. You can improve the community. You know, one person can make a difference and and perhaps this is your pathway. Um, so I think there's there's really a variety of things, but I certainly would encourage anybody who's interested to um, kind of pay attention to what the State Bar is doing. Join us for our committee meetings. If we're meeting on Zoom, then we stream those meetings. You're welcome to, to watch those on our State Bar YouTube page um, and offer your opinion. Uh, truly, every comment that we receive is considered is valuable, um, and particularly to the lawyers that are listening out there. You know, the state bar is more than just a building in Raleigh. The state bar is all of us. Um, that's why I usually like to introduce myself as at CLEs as I am your ethics counsel um, because we are all we all have this role of self-regulation. We have a role to play to to really protect this privilege. And it's an important privilege of self-regulation, but it's only going to be maintained if we actually participate. So I would encourage lawyers, get involved, um, you know, come out. And if, if you have any questions about how to get involved, just give me a call. 
Well, we are unfortunately out of time, but we'd like to thank our guests, Attorney Brian Oten. He is Chief Ethics Counsel at the North Carolina State Bar. Thank you so much for taking time and sharing with us um, about the study and the work that's being done on this incredibly important issue surrounding legal deserts in North Carolina. Thank you. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you have enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.